Ephesians 3.14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. For to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's quite good, isn't it? Now, Gethin was challenging, is reminding us this morning about these bones and whether there's any prospect of, the, of this church being revived and quickened and visited by the Spirit. And, and then, if, if that were kind of balked your faith, he then took us on an imaginary journey into the valleys and beyond. And hey, uh, can I just read these verses again um, from verse 20? Now, to him who is able... I want you to think of a difficult situation church-wise that you're aware of, a prospect. Um, John has been preaching at four o'clock this afternoon to the Welsh speakers in Lisvane. How was it, John, this, this afternoon? <laughs> for them or for you? For you, all right. You were shaking. Oh, that's good. That was, that was yeah, okay. Um, a challenge? A challenge. Think of your situation where there's this challenge. To him who is able to, to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. I'm preaching in Flannoclin next Sunday night, just the other end of Bala Lake from Bala, and they're expecting me in Welsh. So I'll be shaking as well. <clears throat> and the other verse I want you to turn to is in the Acts of the Apostles, um, chapter 9, <coughs> and verse 17. It's after Paul has um, been struck on the road to Damascus, and uh, it's, he's gone and he's alone, blinded, and Ananias goes to him. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, in January, we were looking at the subject of prayer. I trust that we're still praying, 
And one of the reasons for taking the theme we're taking in February about the, well, I'll explain. Those of you here this morning know anyway, is a kind of fodder for fuel for prayer. I, I want over these coming weeks to encourage our expectation. I, I want for God to put some faith in our hearts that he actually can do beyond what we imagine and what we expect. And just, just for that sense of, of encouragement of faith that God hasn't given up on us, the tide hasn't gone out, never to come in. Because <laughs> in some of our hearts, there's a little bit of that. But uh, as Gethin was saying this morning, that a, a suggested preaching program by J J Jeremy McCoy at, at Thornhill um, has been circulated and made available. And uh, we looked at it and thought, you know, do we go through this as it is? And, but what we've done, we've kind of taken bits out of it and in order to try and understand how does the Spirit work? When He comes, when, it, when He moves on our hearts personally, individually, what's, he do, what's happening? How, how does that come about? And, and we want over the next few weeks to, to almost give the Spirit of God fresh emphasis and fresh opportunity. So I'm going to try and preach shorter so that at the end of it we can pray more. That's the plan. We may have to do both. But anyway. What, how does it work when the third person of the Trinity comes powerfully among us? Now I know that someone's thinking, hang on a minute, he came into my heart when I believed. Yes, he did. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. We were born of the Spirit. We were quickened by the Spirit. But there are repeated instances in the Scripture of where the Spirit came more powerfully. And, and the verse in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 3, just, just gives such... that God can do more <laughs> beyond what we can ask or think according to his power working in us. So this idea that really I, I've, I've ticked all the boxes and I've got all there is, I've just got to kind of hold on till heaven, is, isn't supported in the scripture. That there is more than this. <laughs> Be encouraged. God has not finished yet. There's more to see, more, more of his glory to be revealed. And therefore understanding that, that this divine person, the third person of the Trinity, equal, equal, not inferior to the Father and the Son, different in function, but just as much God. Right? The, this person who from eternity past always has been God and to eternity future always will be God, this third person of the Trinity is among us. Right? That he, he, he's resident in our hearts. And all the potential that goes far beyond what we could ever ask or think it is there, given to the church. So, how do we experience this? How do we understand it? How do we cooperate with the Spirit? How do we invite His working? How do we prepare for His coming? Those are my thoughts. And therefore, um, as, as we did in prayer, I want to talk, look at that in, in New Testament terms, and then see if 1904 and how God worked then has any insights and cameos that will help us and apply it to our present day.
What, what is absolutely sure, and uh, watching what Gethin brought us this morning double, just reminded me again, the situation now in Wales is very different to 1904. In 1904 or 1903, the chapels were still largely full, that there was an audience ready to hear, look, that isn't the case anymore. And uh, so the situation is different. God isn't going to do it the same way next time as he did last time. Uh, to me, that's not the challenge. The challenge for us is, is there going to be a next time? Or as Gethin said, can these bones live? And I believe that the first up is that God wants us to have a very, very real sense in our hearts of yes, these bones can, and yes, these bones will. Now, that's faith. There's an expectation of that which will move us to prayer. So we're on number five in Jeremy's list tonight, and he titled it, Fill me with God. But how does fullness work? And uh, how do we enter into all that God has for us? Well, I want to take your thoughts back to the incident when Ananias went to the Apostle Paul. Is familiar with us? Um, but just let me try and paint the picture to give it a little bit of perspective. Saul was the persecutor. A man absolutely set against this new sect that called themselves the followers of the way. The church had begun quite well, but persecution, and after the death of Stephen, things had just stalled a bit. That confidence must have been quite shaken. That the church, by the time that Saul was walking towards Damascus, was a church not cowering, but a church that had lost a large measure of certainty. That, that there must be more than this. And then there's this dramatic change in the man. It, it, if ever a man was turned on his head, the Apostle Paul was. And see, what a coup. What, what a, an astonishing turnaround in a man. And What a moment of opportunity. Things are very difficult. Things seem to be scattering. That, that whether there was decline at that point or, or whether they were expecting it, that, that years had passed since Pentecost. And, and now the, 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 the very man that they feared is the man who is starting to gossip the gospel and argue in the marketplace and take on the rabbis in the synagogue. And suddenly, unexpectedly, that's the word, unexpectedly, God came. Now, one of the things that we just need to understand about the Spirit of God is that invariably, he comes unexpectedly. He comes in a way that we wouldn't quite have predicted. And yet there's a sense, isn't there, in which God normally comes in a way that we wouldn't have expected. That I'm sure, you know, we, we've read the Christmas story, but who would have expected it? That how many years, if, if you, you know, at the end of Malachi, there's hundreds of years then, that some of you are experts on it after yesterday, but that there's hundreds of years then and all this promise about a Messiah, and all this hope of a new covenant, and all this talk about, about God's people being really quickened, and you think, well, what, where is it? 
nothing's happening. Things were getting very dark, consistently dark and discouraging. And then suddenly, the Holy Spirit is operating everywhere, unexpectedly. He's, he, the, the, you've, got, you've got him doing this miraculous thing in Mary's womb. You've got um, John the Baptist, while he's still in the womb, being filled with the Spirit. And you have the same with Simeon and, and others, that suddenly, unexpectedly, the, there's almost a breakout from heaven and everything is changed. I, I'm sure, it's very difficult for us looking back, but take after the resurrection, oh, marvellous, empty tomb, uh, and still that uncertainty, and then all of those days passed, and they retire to pray in an upper room, and they're praying, there's 120 of them praying, and, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, what was the, what was the impact on ordinary lives of a, of a sound of a mighty wind and cloven tongues of fire over your head? What, what, what would that, unexpectedly, God doing the extraordinary, almost without warning, Without, without sending his calling card first. Now, there's something about that practically all the way. See, think of the occasions when people came into the fullness of the Spirit. In, uh, in Acts chapter 8, you have them in Samaria. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that the Spirit of God, that they'd be baptized in the Spirit? But Samaritans, who would ever have thought that God would break out among them. And then you have the, 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 the centurion, Cornelius, you know, in, in, in chapter 10, that people who didn't even understand this stuff. He, he, he was a Greek, he was a Gentile, something of a God-fearer, and you just wouldn't have expected it, would you? He, he thought he'd been paying his tithes and, and, and giving his alms and he was a good man and he was hoping that God might accept him. And then the, the Spirit of God came down on him, fell on him, <laughs> halfway through a sermon, that God comes unexpectedly. You have the people in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus. They've been baptized according to John's baptism. They, they've heard about the... Paul explains about Jesus. They're baptized again in the name of Jesus. And then they start speaking in tongues and prophesying. <laughs> Who told them to do that? Which course did they go on to tell them how you do it? Well, of course, no, God came. Unexpected. There is that sense of it that when he comes, five minutes before he comes, you don't know it's going to happen. I find that very encouraging. I, I've never been up really very much before the dawn, but they tell me it's darkest before it, the, the light breaks. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that, whether it's a myth, a myth or not, but if that's not true, this is. That when God breaks in, comes on our lives, visits his church, he, you don't always know that it's coming, and you rarely know the sheer scale upon which he's going to do it. Now, 1904 was such a case. As Gethin explained this morning, that liberalism, had, had, it was just, just a discouraging time. 1859 was a, was a revival across Wales, and then 
the, the Welsh chapels got, got into arguments as to whether the Church of England should be disestablished. They got into arguments about the education bill as to whether nonconformists should pay an education rate so that kids could go to Anglican schools. You know, big rumpus. And leaders of churches just got distracted on those kind of things. They got, they got into, into clericalism and, and ceremonial dress and wearing funny clothes. Like, the, you know, all of that stuff. That the church just got on the wrong agenda. And they, that, that the nation started to get far more interested in rugby and socialism and materialism. Whether you think those are good or bad, I'm not going to comment. But, but almost that became the most important subject of conversation down the pits rather than what happened and what God was doing among his people. And there was that drift. That, that, that there was a, one of the face that was on, and I'm going to remember, isn't it? Richard Owen, that, that it said it on the video clip that Gethin showed us, that Richard Owen was in, well, yeah, he was, but that was really the, that was only the really bright light in all of those 45 years. And Richard Owen, by the time that God started to use him in Penmine Mire, was getting on. One of the few geriatric revivalists, but I'll come to that next. And then suddenly, 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 you got this young lad who is studying almost doing his A-levels because you have to pass those before you can go to Bala Theological College and he's at Newcastle Emlyn in this tin pot thing of a school just studying so he can kind of write properly and that, and, and that God speaks to him and, and he goes back to his home church and he gathers some of the young people in the Sunday school that's how it started right? there was nothing on Right? that the press would not have been waiting at the door. Oh, this looks terribly exciting. There was nothing happening. And by the end of the week, the whole community was awake and shaken and ablaze. That was the, way the phrase. And on the same day, Howard Morgan's father-in-law, Arby Jones, on the same day, in Ross Clannachrigog, up by Wrexham, that he was holding meetings, and uh, that there, there's this... Oh, that's right. And the morning afterwards, it was in the newspaper. His wife was in Porth, in Iswen, in the Ronda, and his wife got a letter from her husband and the newspaper, and in both of them it says that there were stories of weeping, confessing, and yielding on the same day. Right? That, that there was nothing on the horizon. He couldn't see what... Well, you wouldn't have known. He would, he, actually, there was a, a, a cloud the size of a pocket handkerchief, as Elijah put it, but you wouldn't have known. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, that there is that about the way the Spirit moves. We mustn't ever allow the fact that he hasn't moved today dim our expectation that God in his mercy may well move tomorrow. Do, do you understand that? Now, the other thing about being at expectancy, and I want us to pray about this when we get to the end, if I can keep to my 30 minutes. This for Saul of Tarsus was a phenomenal turnaround. That here's a man who's something of a problem, really. I don't know if you, if you ever know any people like that. Um, the most unlikely instrument. If ever there was a man with baggage, do you know what I mean? 
If ever there was a man that you think, well, we won't kind of set him to defend the faith at the moment. He's only been saved a day and a half. If ever there was a man that was cluttered up with prejudice and has a whole load of history, and yet, God. Do you see that? How did the man turn like that? How can you explain? I will in a minute. But how, how can, how, well, the answer is in verse 15, where, go, this man is my chosen instrument. He was the most unlikely chosen instrument. He was Saul of Tarsus. Now, that's good news, folks. He was only a young man. I don't know how old Paul of, Saul of Tarsus was. Evan Roberts was 26. The majority, I would almost say all with one exception, of the people that God took hold of for those amazing months, of five months with 100,000 converts, I think probably double that number. And I'll explain in a minute. In five months, practically all the people that God took hold of were young people. And more of them were women than men. There's, a, there's a, a new book coming out. Some of you will be glad to hear it. Carriers of the Fire, the Women of the Welsh Revival, 1904-5, their impact and their challenge now. And uh, there's what, it's on the table, Sarah. Um, you can collect it before you go. God took hold of the most unlikely people. That they were unqualified people that they didn't have the stature in society that they might have needed, that, that, that there was hardly any publicity at all. Evan Roberts, Dan Roberts' his brother, Sam Jenkins, who could sing a bit, so he, and they just started, he just formed these teams that, of young people. Uh, after less, uh, about 10 days of meetings that just, and, and fair play, the Western Mail did pick it up, and it was on the headlines across South Wales, Evan Roberts had then an invitation to go and speak at, at Tricunnan, at the top of the Cannon Valley, where he used to work as a miner. And he, went, they, they just took, he walked into this meeting. Now, this was chapel, you know, proper chapel, Calvinistic, Methodist, serious chapel. And he walks in with this bunch of girls. Now, is God going to use this? And, he, he's, and, you know, they kind of, well you know, surely this can't be it. And all these ever so respectable people just glared at him. And uh, he just proceeded until God came down. And, and there was an awkward moment or hour, but uh, eventually the whole thing just ignited and God was in the midst. The most unlikely people. Now, if you, if you think you're somebody important and have a significant profile, I'm awfully sorry, the bad news is that God probably wouldn't trust you to take the anointing and the moving of the Spirit across the nation. Because the danger is that people would then put your name against it. Tragically, that's what they did with Evan Roberts. But God initially just took this nobody. So God came unexpectedly. Not only were people not thinking it was going to happen, but he came unexpectedly in the people that he just took hold of unlikely people, the weak things of this world, the people like us, people open, thirsting, willing, people seeking a personal baptism in the Spirit. It's one thing to say, Lord, pour out your Spirit on the nation, 
But actually, I, I'm not sure that that has credibility until there's a real longing and desperate cry of our hearts, Lord, pour out your Spirit on me. Let, let there be a manifestation of the fullness of the Spirit upon me. And, and Evan Roberts was that man. It, it was almost an obsession with him. Uh, until in Blainanach, the Spirit of God just came over him in waves and all they could hear, oh, oh, and, and the rest of it is history. So that's the first thing, that the Spirit comes unexpectedly. And he comes upon the people that you wouldn't expect, and normally they're young. Too young. Very young. Some of us that are just past it, you know, that it's one of those sad things in life, you know, well, heck, it's probably going to be over there, not over here. Um, and I, through history, through a friend of a friend, and I'm sorry if I'm a geek, but, you know, you wouldn't like this, but I, I'll just tell you anyway. You, on the screen this morning, there was, did you see Daniel Rowland, scowling? You know, the, that old man, he was a revivalist, and, and Howell Harris, that old man, he was a revivalist, and, and, and all the revivalists on the screen were old men. Well, through a friend of a friend, I got introduced to the people that live in Plas Watford, which is just over the hill, where the, at the early days of the Methodist awakening, Howell Harris, um, Daniel Rollins, Williams Pantakellin, George Whitfield, the great preacher that went to the States, and, and Kenick, and a whole lot of others, just met together to pray and to strategize for sending preachers and supporting a new work across Wales. And I, I, I was ushered into the room where it happened, you know, whoa, 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 where's the anointing? Right? And practically all of those men were under 25 when that happened. They weren't all sour-looking faces. They were people that nobody knew and were not really old enough to be given any responsibility in our thinking, and yet God took hold of them. Interesting, isn't it? That's the first thing, spirit Uwek. I'll say it quickly. Spirit comes powerfully. <coughs> Paul was rumbled, wasn't he? What, what measure of power hit that man? What does it take to transform somebody who one minute is absolutely your worst enemy into being the person who's preaching, fearlessly arguing for the gospel? That this impartation of the Spirit, this irresistible power, what was the spiritual energy that came on the day of Pentecost? We know about the wind, we know about the fire, but, but what was it that went through those men and women, so much so that they said they were drunk? What was it in Samaria, when those new believers were baptized in the Spirit? What was it that Simon, the sorcerer, said, you know, how much that... that I may also have this power. What was that? That this, this coming of God, that you know, thousands of Jews were converted. Now, with all respect, if, if you think that Welsh speakers are hard to see saved, try a Jew. Are they not the most conservative, tied into their tradition people on God's earth? They are. What power, what moving of God turned thousands, I mean thousands of God's old covenant people with all the prejudices. They'd been cheering 
when Jesus was crucified, what power is it that comes into Jerusalem? That must have been the hardest place on God's earth. What power is it when the Spirit comes? You have someone like Cornelius. You know, was it the prophesying cohort? He was the centurion of this whatever cohort it was. Were they all prophesying the next week? How does that happen? In 1904, at the beginning of the month, Evan Roberts got some of his young people together in, in a Sunday school class and taught them all the prayer, send the Holy Spirit for Jesus' sake. And when, 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 when he didn't feel the Spirit had come powerfully enough, he asked them all to say it again. And then he changed the word and he said, send the Holy Spirit more powerfully. For Jesus. It was a really kind of sophisticated approach that he had to seeing the movement of the Spirit. By the end of December, he, he went to sorry, he went to Tricunnan, I think on the 14th of February. The, the Western Mail calculates that by the end of December, 34,131 people had committed themselves to Christ. What is that? How do you explain that? I, I, I think that you can probably double those figures. Because, actually, that only records the people who returned in forms that, who read the Western Mail, and it, it only records people that were in the area that read the Western Mail. I, I was listening last night to a tape that somebody gave me of, a, of Elizabeth Williams' Gwydelwyn. Now, Gwydelwyn is a little village just north of Corwin, uh, uh, east of Valla. And uh, this is a tape recording of this lady and was asked whether she had, had been in the river. Oh, yes, she was in the And she talked for probably 20 minutes about the awakening in Gwydelwyn. Evan Roberts never went to Gwydelwyn. Most people don't go to Gwydelwyn unless they're lost, right? It's, there's nothing there but scenery. It's just milk quotas and, and, and fields. And she talked about the Spirit of God coming into the meetings in Gwydelwyn. She talked about the little groups of children in the playground praying in the lunch break that the Spirit of God would come again. She talked about large numbers of people who'd had a trauma, had been converted in the revival, who was, still had the, hat, the, the mark of the Spirit on them 20 years later. Ooh. What is that? It, it, it's God coming in power. It's something that is evidently God. My time is gone because I want us to pray before we go home tonight. It, it's something of the kingdom of heaven breaking in. It's something outside of us and our clever organizational presentational skills. It's something of God on the basis of promises that he will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. It's the promise that if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? It's the kind of promise, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have received power from on high. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you.
That there was some preparation, I'll say that for an, I'll save that for another night. But there were people who just believed these promises that God will come unexpectedly. We're, we're familiar in James in Joel 2, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. But earlier in the chapter, that there are these references to when God comes, almost in seasons, that there will be the early and then the latter rains. God, 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 somebody said, well, God is a gardener, not a magician. That, 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 that there are seasons when God comes and refreshes and does his work good. I will bless them and the places surrounding my hell I will send down showers in its season and there will be showers of blessing. It's the history of the church that God in his mercy unexpectedly has come. Now he has prepared people's hearts. I will have to leave that for later. But it, he, he does come. We can have this confident expectation that God has not given up on us. Ah, but David, you don't understand. How bad it is, how dry it is, all the more reason for expectation, all the more grounds for hope. God generally lets it get beyond what we can do to put it right before he comes and sets it in order. And when he comes, he comes and he takes hold of people that really we wouldn't even have on the candidates list. He, he, he doesn't take the people who, have, who are experienced or qualified or, or have the status that people will respect them and listen to them. He, he takes the people who, as soon as they start to speak, the criticism is targeted on them because that way that we can't say that we did it, we'll all have to acknowledge that he did it. I, think that, I hope you're encouraged by the prospect that God can take the likes of you and he can come even at a time when things are most difficult. And we need to prepare and we need to be keep praying. But the, the fact that it's difficult are not grounds for thinking that probably he won't come. Maybe since he did say that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, maybe that's all the more grounds for expecting that maybe he will and maybe very soon.